All right. Good to be back with you guys. It's weird to miss a week. I feel off whenever uh, whenever we're gone for a week. So it's good to be able to be back. It's okay. I don't blame you guys. Everybody's got to get married. So, you know what I mean? Uh, I guess not everybody's got to do it. But if you're going to do it, may as well, you know, have a ceremony and all that. I was happy to be there. So um, tonight um, we actually, so basically, I don't know if you know this, We've been in the introduction to 2 Corinthians since we started. Um, Tonight we get into kind of the meat of 2 Corinthians a little bit tonight as we jump into it. And tonight, um, Morgan is here to chat with us as well. So, yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, it's my cousin. So, um, we we put our special cousin rings together before we came in here for Cousin Power. And uh, we're going to try and bring, bring the word together tonight. So um, let me pray for us and we'll get started, all right? Dear God, thank you for your word. And thank you for your people. And thank you for your Holy Spirit. And uh, if, if he does not do the work tonight, then we're wasting our time coming together. And so I pray that as we open this, that your Holy Spirit would do, um, would do the life-changing work. Um, that you would write us up as yours and, uh, and demonstrate to the world uh, who we are by the way you change our lives. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, so, from the beginning, from the, the moment we've started this study, you have known, because we have told you, um, that Paul is not just dealing with the Corinthian believers when he writes this letter. That sitting in the background, sitting back in the shadows this whole time has been this other group of people, that is these false teachers or these super apostles, as they might call themselves, who are coming in and trying to gain their own following amongst the Corinthians. And they have had some degree of influence, particularly it seems like amongst uh, some of the kind of wealthier, higher ups. This would have been a group that was very impressive, very, very gifted speakers, and, uh, and they've come in and they've tried to kind of gain their influence in this region. And so um, we've known about them the whole time. Paul has not said anything about them until tonight. Tonight is the first time that he actually references, and he even kind of does it subtly, um, that there are false teachers there, that there are other people to be messed with in this letter. Today, we will see him from this point on start to slowly take aim at those false teachers. Um, just kind of catching us up or reminding you of the context, go to chapter 1, verses 15. We'll go real quick. Um, Chapter 1, verse 15 is where Paul starts to explain his travel plans. Um, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Then verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul here is explaining what his plans that he had changed to was to come into Corinth and then up to Macedonia. This is kind of a a child's map tonight. I didn't want to put the effort in, okay? So um, up to Corinth and then into Macedonia and come back down. He changed that plane, and so some people were saying he's fickle, he can't be trusted, so he's explaining himself in there. He only gets a little bit into that in verses 15, 16, before he starts to kind of go into the deeper, by the way, this is who I am. This is my integrity. I am not the kind of person who's going to say yes and then no to you because Jesus is not the kind of God that says yes and then no to you. And so he goes into this kind of um, statement on that. And then when we get to verses uh, 123 on down to 2-4, Paul says the reason that he changed his plans and that he didn't come to Corinth first. He says it was to spare you. After he had this big confrontation with someone in the church who challenged them and people didn't stand up for Paul in that, and he left and he was torn up and he sent this tear-filled letter because he knew if I go back, it, it might not be good for our relationship right now. And so instead he sends this letter with Titus and he explains that in that section. And then last week you got to hear a little bit more. He he gives instruction for what they're to do with this person. The person who confronted Paul. The person who attacked him and said, we don't need you, Paul. We don't trust you. We've got our own apostles over here to trust. That person has since 
come around and repented, apparently. And so Paul gives instructions on forgiving that person. That leads us into Paul coming back to talking about his travel plans. Now, Paul keeps trying to talk about what his travel plans are. It takes him seven chapters to get about four sentences out on it, all right? Um, because he kind of gets stalled on some of these things. But here we go on two, chapter 2, verse 12. I'll read tonight. Chapter 2, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even, door, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Um, so Paul says he took leave and went to, or first he went to Troas. Where was he before Troas? Do you remember? Where has he been for most of this time? Ephesus for two and a half years, which is about here, and he goes up to Troas, which is um, on the coast here, um, and, and he went there for a little while, but he doesn't hear back from Titus, and he's already sweating it. He, he, he already, he's, he's weeping over this letter he sends. He's not sure how it's going to go, and he doesn't hear anything back from Titus. Titus doesn't show up and meet him there, which apparently was the plan, and so he starts to get antsy about that, and he moves on to Macedonia. Now, the reason probably why that that might seem strange. Why, if the plan is to meet Titus in Troas, why leave Troas? Just wait. Um, more than likely, we don't know this for sure, but if it's getting late into the sailing season, if it's moving into winter time, then you can no longer sail across the open sea. So Titus can't go straight from Corinth to Troas. You can sail along the coastland. And so Paul hops on a ship and sails over to Troas, expecting that what Titus will probably do, since he can't sail across now, is go up into Macedonia. And so Paul makes his way into Macedonia. Now, the ESV says it like this. Um, uh, when I came to try to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. So the way it sounds is there was a door open for me to preach in Troas, but even though I had that, I decided to go to Macedonia because I was uh, worried. Uh, but, but actually the word there that gets translated even though in the Greek is chi. And it can be translated as even though. The vast majority of the time it is translated and. Um, so I came to Troas and a door was opened for me to preach the gospel. And, and I did not see Titus, so I went to Macedonia. Um, what, what Paul might be saying here, what I think he may actually be saying is not, a door is open for me to preach in Troas, but I decided to leave because I wanted to see Titus. But no, I came to Troas and then I noticed a door was open for me to go preach in Macedonia. And I was missing Titus anyway, so I went there. Um, if that's what Paul's saying, then what he's saying is, the reason I made these decisions I did about um, where to go, whether to go to Corinth or Macedonia or Troas or wherever, is because I'm trying to follow and I am following the leading of the Lord. And that phrase would lead him into what he starts going into now. Verses uh, 14, so yeah, start in 14. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always, and here's the word, leads us, who always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Um, now, Paul, like I said, he starts talking about his traveling story and going to meet Titus So. Um, he says, so I went to Macedonia to see if I would see Titus there. He will not tell us whether or not he sees Titus until chapter 7, okay? He gets a little bit distracted and, and, and starts going off into these other things for a little bit. So he'll talk through this. Um, what he's going to get into between then and there from 2.14 all the way to chapter 7, verse 4, is a big, long treatise on his ministry, and some have said that it is the richest, most like theologically deep um, passage on Christian ministry in all of the New Testament. Um, so we're going to get into Paul's explanation of what Christian ministry ought to look like, what his looks like, and why he believes it to be so. And it will be uh, a pretty, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty in-depth stuff. Now, there is a lot of debate over what Paul is talking about when he gives this whole passage. Thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. Oh, I should say this, by the way. The reason Paul is about to lead them into this deep issue of ministry and what his ministry looks like is because Paul is starting to set up this list of contrasts between he and the false teachers in Corinth. 
and he is leading the Corinthians to a fork in the road to say, this is what my ministry looks like, and this is what theirs looks like, so you choose. Um, so that's what we're going to see him start to do right now. He's going to set up some contrast in here. Now, as I said, there are a number of people. How many of you, I don't know if you read this in your, those of you who are in table groups and read this passage, um, were a little bit confused when you came to this whole leads us in triumphal procession and we are an aroma and to some people a pleasing one and to some people a stench and all those things. And what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Um, there are, there is some debate as to what, or a lot of discussion as to what Paul is getting at when he's talking about this. There's not a whole lot of debate over the word picture that he's using. Most commentaries agree on what Paul is actually describing when he says, praise be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Most people would say that he's using in Latin is the pompa triumpha. Sometimes we just call it the Roman triumph. And, and what the Roman triumph is, it was this, this would have been a, a common, I don't know if I would say common, a well-known image in the Greco-Roman culture. Something that the people would read and they would know when he starts talking like this. They would picture it in their brains. They would know what this is because it was kind of ingrained in the culture. When a Roman general went off to war and won a great and, and epic successful like military campaign, they threw these um, huge parades for them called a Roman triumph when they entered back into Rome, when they entered back into the city. And, and they would decorate this general up in, in all scarlet or, or uh, purple cloth, which was, you know, very fine, very rich dye to be able to be able to afford that. And so they put him in this elaborate costume and they stick him in this um, beautiful two-wheeled chariot pulled by four horses. And they would ride him through the streets and everyone would celebrate and they would wave palm branches and, and they would be um, rejoicing and screaming as the, as the man walked through. But he did not just go through by himself. Whenever this would take place as a way of celebrating the great victory that had just been won for Rome, a series of things would come before him and a handful of things would come after him. Um, the first thing that would be led through the city in this uh, parade as it made its way through the streets would be the, uh, the spoils of the war. So treasure, the gold and the silver that had been won during these things, and the weapons that had been taken from all the enemies would be marched through as a way of showing all that they had done. And then um, shortly after that, they would begin to march through with uh, pictures and paintings of battle scenes from the war that had been fought or cities that had been conquered. And then uh, shortly after that, boards with the names of all the people groups that had been conquered during that war would start to march through. Just behind that, white oxen that were at the end of the parade sacrificed to Jupiter as a thank you for his uh, help in giving success to, uh, to them in battle. And then right after the oxen, and just before the general came another group, the, the first and only group to not be happy to be there, except for the oxen, but they don't know any better at this point. So they're kind of oblivious, but they, they, they wouldn't want to be there if they knew. Um, this group knows uh, because this is the group, and they march right in front of the general of all the people that he captured. This is his captives, or at least, you know, the famous ones, the big ones. And he marches them through the city as well, right in front of him. And the most prominent of these would be executed just before the sacrifice to Jupiter, towards the end of the parade. It would be a, a somewhat climactic moment in some of these parades. And then comes the general, along with his bodyguard, along with his children. The young ones would ride in the chariot with him. The older boys would ride on horses next to him. And then coming behind him, would be all the Roman captives that he had set free. All the ones who had been imprisoned or had been enslaved by this people group who had since come in and tried to take part of Rome's territory. And when he came in and he emancipated them, uh, slaves that had recently been freed would put these felt caps on, kind of marking them. And these ones who were marched through would come through with these felt caps on, marking that they had just been emancipated, they had been freed. And then after that, all the general's men would come marching behind him. This was a huge spectacle and a huge amazing thing. Uh, uh, it was accompanied by the blowing of trumpets all throughout the procession as it went and the burning of incense that could be smelled all the way across the town. And so it was this like multi-sensory experience, the noise and the sights and the smells and all of this stuff was getting taken in in those moments. And Paul, when he says this, it, it, it would look something like 
our Super Bowl celebration parties. When a team wins the Super Bowl and they go back to their town and the town, the whole town shuts down to throw a celebration for them. And when Paul starts talking about God leading us in triumphal entry, this is what starts to go through the minds of the Corinthian people. That part's not debated. What's questioned and what is wondered about is what is Paul trying to get across with this? Specifically, when he says God leads us in triumphal procession, who is Paul and the apostles in that big parade? What position does he take in that spot? Um, we know he's not the general, because in God's view, the general is Christ himself. He is God himself through Christ. That is the one whose victory is being celebrated. So then where is Paul? Most, most scholars, in fact, a majority of the translations actually translate it this way, believe that Paul is describing himself as the captives in this. That he is the one who has been captured and is being led off in front of the people, led off to death. And so if you read like the NIV will actually say, who leads us as captives in his thing, that, that phrase captive isn't actually in there. It just says leads in triumphant procession. Um, but most scholars think that's what, that's what Paul's getting at, and so the NIV, the NLT, and a handful of others will actually put that phrase in there. They think this because in a number of those parades, that was the climactic moment. That was the focal point, the captives that were being brought in so everyone could see them, and so some of them could be slaughtered in front of the people. They also think this because of the way Paul talks all through the Corinthian letters. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians constantly about how it is his role to suffer on behalf of God and the gospel. And, and so they think that, that that seems to make sense. Also, Paul describes the apostles' ministry in 1 Corinthians 4 like this. This is from 1 Corinthians 4, um, 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And so for that reason... Most people think that what Paul is talking about is being a captive that is led off to slaughter um, on behalf of God and his victory. I thought that for most of, I say for most of the time that I studied this at least, uh, over the last several years, that's what I believe. Uh, I recently, this week actually, had my, had my mind changed by a, a guy by the name of George Guthrie who's written a commentary on 2 Corinthians. And Guthrie says um, that he does not believe that that's what Paul's referencing here um, for, for a couple different reasons. One is some kind of Greek grammatical stuff that I can't really understand that well, and so I'm not going to waste your time um, trying to explain something I don't get and all those things. Um, also because actually he says in most of the descriptions of a Roman triumph, captives aren't even mentioned. Now, in some of them, they are kind of the focal point, but in most, in a lot of them, they're never even mentioned. And so um, he goes, don't be so quick to think the Corinthians, that's where their mind goes when Paul talks about this stuff. Um, and secondly, because of what Paul says next, the other confusing part, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Um, and, and so I think that he may be something else. Actually, I forgot to mention this. Here's the other reason that I, I've, I no longer believe that he's talking about being the captives. And that is because it would be not weird for Paul to talk about suffering and dying under God. He, he does that a lot. What would be weird is for Paul to talk about still being God's enemies. Paul takes pains in a number of his writings to say we used to be that, that we were his enemies. But he loved us enough that even as his enemies, he died for us to make us his friends, to make us his children. And so it would seem a little odd for Paul to to use that idea of him being a captive, uh, an enemy of God, even at this point. Instead, actually, I think, in, in light of his aroma stuff, that what he's actually describing is another person who stood in front of the general, and that were the incense bearers, who had on poles these boxes with incense burning in them so that it wafted out amongst the crowd and amongst the general and all the people there as they were walking through. And here's kind of the crazy thing about that incense that burned on, on those, uh, in those Roman triumphs. It was the same smell to everybody, but some people, when they smelled it, knew that it meant new life. And there were some people who, when they smelled it, knew that it meant death for them. And, and Paul, uh, Paul describes his ministry here in this exact same way. He says, we are an aroma of Christ 
that God is spreading the knowledge of himself through us. And to some people when they smell it, it is the smell of life, from, of life to life. And then there are others, it is the smell of death unto death. Paul says this is what the gospel does. That the gospel declares and announces the victory of God. And by its very definition, there will be some who hear it and rejoice in it as it leads them to life. And by its very definition, there will be others who hear it and want nothing to do with it and only hate it. And it only reminds them of, of the darkness within them. It only reminds them of, of what they are missing and those kinds of things. So this is what the gospel does. And so I think that Paul is using this imagery and kind of placing himself there as an incense bearer. But notice, Paul... Um, notice who Paul says spreads the aroma, which he calls the knowledge of God. Who is it? It's not Paul. It's God himself. This is where the, the illustration breaks down a little bit. It is um, God, it says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul says it is God who does it, but he does it through us. We're the vessel that does it. But God is the one who is actually spreading um, the knowledge of him. Uh, Go on to the second half of verse 16. He says, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Um, Another thing uh, that kind of Guthrie points out, he believes that that little question at the end of verse 16 who is sufficient for these things may be the key question for the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Paul just mentioned that he has this role in some very cosmic things. Life and death, the eternal destiny of people, the thing that divides from those who love it to those who hate it, to those who are like the, like the slaves set free who adore God, who adore the general, and those who hate him because they know that their time is coming soon. God, Paul says he's got this amazing role to play in spreading the ends of this. And he goes, and who in the world would ever be sufficient for this? Who in the world could ever measure up to this? And 2 Corinthians is in some ways answering that question. Who is qualified for the ministry of the gospel? Who is really qualified to do this kind of things? Um, and here is where the contrasts start. Paul says in 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, hint, hint, okay? So he doesn't, he doesn't call them out by name, but he says, um, we're not like, you know, there are some people who are only there to peddle God's word, only there to try and make a buck. And I'm not going to name names, but we all know who we're talking about, right? And, and so that's what he says. And so the contrast there, he says, those who are trying to use God's word to make money and, the, and us, those who speak God's word as people of sincerity. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Here's what Paul is saying to them. I, as an apostle, it was common for people to come if they came into a new place to bring a letter of recommendation. In fact, Paul even sends sometimes. He'll send a letter with someone like Timothy, and he says, "Um, Timothy is my faithful brother in the Lord. Treat him well. Listen to him as you would listen to me. And so uh, he's getting like a reference letter. He's getting a letter of recommendation from Paul on behalf of Timothy. And, and so people would bring this to a new town and to, to kind of show, hey, you should trust me. I'm with this guy. I've got his authority. I've got that thing. That's what we believe these false teachers have brought into the people of Corinth. They've brought in this long list of credentials and this long list of churches from somewhere. We don't know where or even if they might have just been making them up. These churches from somewhere vouching for them and saying, hey, listen, all these churches vouch for us. Um, where's Paul's letters of recommendation? Like, like does that, did that dude even show you any documentation to, say, to show you that he's real or that he's legit? And so they come in with this, and Paul writes here and says, do I really need to? After planting this church, after starting this, after bringing you guys to what you are, do I really need to commend myself all over to you again? Do I, need to rec- do I need to recommend myself as an apostle to show that my ministry is legit again? Do I need, like some, hint, hint, to bring letters of recommendations from others in order to authenticate myself? Here's what he says in verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation 
written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is profound. Paul says, you want a letter of recommendation. You want proof to show you that I am legit. Here's my letter. Your own lives. Look at you, Paul says. Think back to what you were before I came. Think back to the kind of lives you were living and look at what you are becoming now. Look at what God has been doing in your life. Look what the Spirit has been enacting in you. Paul says, that is proof that my ministry is for real. That is proof that my apostleship is authentic. Look at the results. I don't need letters. I've got you. I've got your own lives. And so um, he says, but, but again, and it's, it's worth noting, just like back um, when he talks about the triumphal entry and the aroma, it's not actually Paul that has come and changed these people's lives. He says that the letter of the Corinthians that has been written, not, not this letter of Corinthians, but the people, he says, you're my letter. Who wrote that? The text, it says Christ. Christ wrote them. And he wrote them in the instrument he used to write it. Not Paul, actually. Um, the Holy Spirit. He says, we write you not with ink. God, he wrote you not with ink, but with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm just the delivery boy. I, I got to play a small role. I got to bring this letter for the world to see. I got to, I got to bring Jesus to you and then let him do the work in you. But all I am is the delivery boy. Here's what Paul says. How do you know if a ministry is authentic or not? How do you know if it's legit, how do you know if it is from God or not? Paul says this, not by how many show up on Sunday morning or on Thursday evening, not by how much money they can raise in their offerings for missions, not by how dynamic the speaker is, not by how incredible the worship and the amazing experience that you had in singing out to God in that moment. None of the things that, you know, we always use to evaluate ministries, Paul says those aren't how you know. The way you know if a ministry is authentic or not is whether or not the Spirit of God is active in the lives of the people, changing them into Jesus. So you don't count heads when people walk in the door and say, this is, do this is doing good work. You don't listen to the speaker and go, man, that guy really knows how to teach. That girl really knows how to preach. You don't do that and go, this is how I know the Spirit is here, or this is how I know God is at work. What you do is you look at the lives of the people and see if they are being changed and shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit. That's how you know if a ministry is authentic. Paul says, um, uh, that Paul says is the primary marker between he and the false apostles. When I showed up, the Spirit started working in your life. When I preached Jesus to you, you started changing. Have you seen that take place since these men have shown up? And this is why he can say that he's better than them without bragging. Because look what he says next. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. So he says, I'm confident. I will recommend myself to you. I will commend myself to you again. But then he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Um, you could translate that word sufficiency as qualification or our competency, our ability um, our worthiness is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he does not say, he does not come to them and say, I am confident in my ministry because I'm awesome. He does not come to them and say, uh, I, I'm not really that great guys. No, it's not me. It's all. No, he actually comes and says, I am confident. And let me tell you something. My ministry is sufficient, and I am sufficient to come do that. But he says this, but I do not find any of that sufficiency in and of myself. That that sufficiency comes from God at work in me. God is front to back in this text. It is God who spreads the knowledge of himself to the world, even though it may be through Paul and his company. It is God who writes the Corinthians out as this letter of recommendation, but uh, Paul gets to be the delivery person. It is God who makes Paul and his team sufficient for this new covenant. But the last phrase here is a little bit weird. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. What does he mean by that? Morgan's going to answer that in just a couple minutes. Um, for now, we'll take a break, and then we'll get back up and talk about that in a second.
That's going? That's going. And Let's then I just... that up there. That way I don't turn it off? There you go. All right. All right. Okay, Drew asked a really good question. He asked, uh, what does Paul mean by the letter kills but the spirit gives life? That's a really good question. Um, and it's just this little tagline that's on the end of this phrase that you guys have been, you guys have studied this whole text. And then there's this little tiny phrase at the end, nine words. And it's like, what? What does that mean? And it causes a lot of confusion. And there has been a lot of debate about that phrase among scholars. You can read about it in commentaries, which are these books that basically talk about the text by really smart guys that have researched the text um, really, really well. And so you can look at all this debate. And some of the debate that they have is they want to know what is the contrast and comparison, what is the difference between this idea, letter versus spirit. Letter, spirit, what does that mean? Letter slash spirit, what does that mean? So here are what people believe. There are some people, like, within the church um, way early on, okay, like more originally, they started to believe that the spirit, um, that what it's referring to here, the, the letter and the spirit, it's referring to, like, the spirit of the law, Okay, so they're, they're thinking that more important than the letter of the law, what it says, is the spirit of the law, the motives behind it. Kind of like it's the thought that counts. Okay, that's kind of what they believed. That was quickly dismissed as a good, as a good interpretation, didn't last very long. And um, actually, um, what happened is the Reformation came along and it changed all of that. Okay? Um, but in between, before the Reformation came along, because I think theirs is probably even closer to a good definition, we have what some people believe today. Some people believe today that essentially what Paul is talking about here when it talks about the letter slash spirit and what that's referring to is legalism. So he thinks letter equals legalism. He thinks the Pharisees basically took the law and aspects of the law and made it into this way that you couldn't belong and you couldn't um, obtain and obtain any sort of righteousness or you couldn't do anything right. And they started to build this hedge around it and they started to find ways around the law. And it became this self-righteous way to follow um, God and to obey his law. Um, and so he believes it's legalism. That's what they're talking about. So he says, um, basically, you took the law and you've perverted it, um, and so now it looks more like legalism, okay? And that's what's wrong. So the problem with it, that I have with this is that focuses on, that idea focuses on an aspect of the law, not on the law as a whole. And when Paul writes and talks about the law, he's not talking really as much about specific parts of the law, but he talks about the law as a whole in his letters. And he doesn't talk about the law um, in the context of what this Jewish community thought. He talks about the law as this factual thing, this object. So I have a problem with that. Um, so that's today. And then we had what, what, what was a long time ago. And then in between there, like I said, was the Reformation. And what happened in the, period of the, in the time period of the Reformation is this. Uh, interpreters started um, recognizing that the letter-spirit contrast, it doesn't signify necessarily two different ways of reading Scripture. Um, with like the church determining what the motives of the scripture is. But instead, it refers to the distinction between the law and the gospel, either as, um, as manners in relating to God through the law, relating to God through the law versus relating to God through the gospel. So basically, what came out of the Reformation period is this. It's that the letter equals the law, what Paul's talking about here, and the spirit and the spirit equals the gospel. That's what, that's what they kind of understood. So if we read 2 Corinthians 3, 6 this way, then what the law, when the law is said to kill because of its demand for sinless perfection as a means of work, this is what it would have, this is what it would have been talking about. Okay? So it would have said basically the law is said to kill because it demands for sinless perfection, of like a workspace righteousness, and in turn, we can't keep that workspace righteousness, so it, it just brings death. It, it kills. It's condemnation to everyone because we can't keep the law perfectly. Okay? And then the church would say, but the law is not lost. There's still a good part to it. And here's what it is. is basically the law's only purpose is to force a sinner okay, to despair under its demands and then drive that sinner to the life-giving promise of forgiveness and the power found in the gospel. Okay? So essentially, what they're saying is that the letter law kills in order that the spirit slash gospel might make us alive. Okay, so it says, law kills, knowledge of that law drives us to despair, the despair drives us to the gospel, the gospel gives us life, gives us hope. That's what he's saying. Now here's the deal. I have a problem with this. 
that I don't really think this is necessarily true. Um, not fully. I don't think it's, it's like a half-baked definition, a half-baked idea, okay? It's gooey in the center, and it might taste good at first, but it might make you throw up a lot later, okay? That's kind of what it did for me. I was like, I kind of like this, started running with it, and I was like, this isn't right. Like, I'm studying all these other texts, and this can't be, okay? And here's why I have, this pro I have a problem with this text. In the Old Testament itself, the law is an expression of salvation and an election of, of, of Israel as God's chosen people. It's not a precondition for um, Israel to be God's people. Okay? So the law is basically God saves them from the, Egyptian from the Egyptian people. God brings them out of slavery. He gives them the law. He declares that he is their people. And he gives them the law. It's not follow this law and then you will be my people. It's because you are my people, here's this covenant that we are going to have. So I have a problem with this idea. So God saves his people um, from the slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. And then as a response to God's acts of deliverance and commitment to provide for his people, obedience to his commands became like an outward expression of trust in the promises and provision that he, that he gives them as his people. Um, keeping the covenant that belonged, that God established with his people is a way that his people belonged to him. Okay? Keeping his covenant was a way that people showed that they belonged to God, not a way to become his people. It's a way to show that they already belonged to him. And then also, the law that God established through his covenant with his people um, provided forgiveness. So I know that sounds weird, and you could kind of go into it and whether it really forgives or not, but Within his law, it does have this call for obedience to a covenant, and it's given within provisions of a whole entire sacrificial system that comes with it. So God very much has provided for his people, and his people belong to him, and that's why he has given them the law. And they, by obeying the law, it shows that they belong to him, not to these other, like these other groups of people that belong to these foreign gods. Okay? So that's kind of why I don't really agree with what it's talking about. <laughs> So if it's, not that, if it's not that the law says, but the spirit of the law, like the motives behind the law is where it matters, and if letter versus spirit is not that the law's only purpose is to get, condemn you in hopes that you find the gospel, um, and if it's not that the law in 2 Corinthians 3.6 refers to legalism, then what is the idea behind letter slash spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Because it does say this, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does that mean? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I think, like most everything that you can read in Scripture, that the key to the meaning of letter-spirit contrast is, is, in this case, the immediate context in 2 Corinthians, and then two Old Testament prophecies that it points us back to. Okay? So it's in the immediate context, and then in two Old Testament prophecies that that context points us back to. So in 3.3, it says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. This is what Drew is talking about. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In verse 3-3, Paul, what he's doing is he's establishing this contrast between God's work in the past under an old covenant, and then in which he basically he engraved his covenant. Does anybody know how he engraved it? On tablets of stone given to Moses, okay? And Moses showed those to his people, okay? That was his covenant, he engraved it, so it's on, not on stone tablets. He's contrasting that with his present work under a new covenant, which he engraves his letter of Christ on the tablets of human hearts. And then in 4 through 6, it says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a, here it is again, new covenant, Okay, so we talked about Old Covenant earlier, okay? Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, referring to covenant. And then here he says, ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 
So even more so, God's present work is by means, by means of the Spirit, it's seen to be, it's, that would be, have been seen to be a fulfillment of two different Old Testament texts. The first is this, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, there's Ezekiel 11, 19, and there's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, and I'm going to read them because when you, when you read them, you would be understanding kind of what this original audience would have heard through, these same, through this same language, okay? Here's what Ezekiel 11, 19 says. This is talking about something that is to come, okay? And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So the people at this time they were, as commentaries would say, they were stiff-necked people. They were stubborn. They were not following God's decrees and his statutes. They were not obeying his commands. They were constantly um, turning away from God to worship idols and to follow other gods, okay? And then he says this in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. I love this text. You guys should highlight it and maybe write it and put it on your mirror. It says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Doesn't that make you think of your conversion? Say that again. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what it says in Ezekiel. So here's what I think. I think that Paul isn't concerned with two different messages, like the message of the law versus the message of the spirit. Okay? I don't think he's concerned with two different messages. But I think, he's con- I think what he's talking about here are two different materials on which God wrote. Okay? Stone tablets, the heart. Two different materials on which God wrote. And that corresponds to two basic ages within this history of salvation for God's people. Okay, one through the law and now in the new covenant through Christ, fulfilled in Christ. So those who now have received the Holy Spirit, those who are now followers of Jesus Christ and have received his spirit are now able to keep the law just as Ezekiel prophesied. So then Paul has this like flow of argument that happens from 3 verse 3 to verse 6 and it, says, and it shows us that Paul understood... Now, the coming, of, the coming of the Spirit that Ezekiel promises is also to be talked about with this idea of new covenant that this other prophet, Jeremiah, talks about. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, it's the only time that it actually says the words new covenant in the whole Old Testament. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. And then it says it here in 2 Corinthians. And the New Testament says it a lot more than that. But that's, that's kind of what the people would have heard. That's what they would have referred to Old Testament-wise. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this. Again, pointing to the future, pointing to when Christ is going to come, okay? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with his people, and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, okay? Out of the land of Egypt, that would, right? Stone tablets, covenant on the stone, okay? Not, so not, let me find it, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, not him, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He was faithful, that's the idea there. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each, shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother. I love this, and we'll talk about this in a second. But, um, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No more. 
Now that, that little thing, and I'm going to come back to that, but whenever it says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's like a fundamental difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Not fundamental, I guess. That's a big difference in the Old, Te- in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because in the Old Covenant, there were these special people that had like the Spirit of the Lord that were called God's remnant. And they were, trying, they were explaining to others. And now we believe that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. Like I don't have to tell you to know the Lord because you're either, you either know Him or you do not. Like, if I'm talking to you about not knowing the Lord, it's because you are not a part of the new covenant yet. You are not in the family of God yet. So there's no more of this wish-washy going back and forth. There's none of, my grandma was a believer, therefore I'm a believer. I'm not born into this thing. It's not, it's not made by, like, I'm born into this, into this, and then she can maybe explain it to me. No, like, the way you're born is by, through a death and resurrection process that we follow um, in this example called baptism, and you are brought, it's kind of this inauguration into the family of God, and you are part of this family. So you have the spirit or you don't, Okay. And I might say that again in a minute. I'm sorry if I do. I wiped it from later and said it now. So, um, the law written on their heart from Jeremiah is equivalent to, I'm going to say this, is equivalent to the obedience to God's statutes that according to Ezekiel, the Spirit will bring about the final restoration of God's people. True in both of these situations, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the promise of the new heart with its spirit will cause obedience to the law, which is a reversal of God's people at the time. God's people at the time are, remember, a stiff-necked people, a hard-hearted people. And they've been characterized as that since God brought them out of, in the Exodus. <laughs> since they brought them out of Egypt, it's how they've been characterized. So a new relationship to God's law is going to be made possible only by this divine act of someone coming in to redeem and save their people. That, that should sound very familiar to you. should sound very familiar to you. So the problem with the law is not the law itself. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He talks about that, I mean, he talks about it a lot. He's, he does not an anti-law, okay, as, as much as he is pro-spirit. Pro-New Covenant, pro-Christ, okay? So he's not as much anti-law as he is pro-Christ, pro-Spirit. The problem with the law is not the law itself, but it's the people whose heart remained hardened under the law. The law declares God is good and and he's perfect. It declares his good and perfect will, but it's powerless to enable people to keep God's good and perfect will. Only the Spirit can give life by changing the human heart. So, the contrast in 2 Corinthians 3.6 is not about the law and the spirit, as if the spirit replaces the law, but it's as, but between the law as letter and the spirit. You see the difference? It's not the law just is, goes away. Matthew 5 talks about how it's not, Jesus didn't come to just like disregard and throw the law away, he came to fulfill the law. So it's not like the spirit replaces the law, it's that the spirit, it's the, it's the letter of the law that the Spirit takes place of. The law without the Spirit remains just like a lifeless letter. That's impossible to keep. But we're just going to continue to fail to do so over and over and over. Now, the covenant does look different in a lot of ways, but we are able to actually keep this covenant with the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, where the covenant that was under the letter of the law was impossible to keep. Okay, it's a big deal. Okay, I'm going to say this, because this is what I was saying earlier, but it's better written out. I'm going to, so I'm going to say it, because I want you to write it down. In the OT, that's easier than writing Old Testament, that's the only reason I say it like that. In the OT, it's easier for your notes. In the OT, the people of God were the nation of Israel. In Christ, it is no longer possible to be a member of the covenant people, ethnically or corporately, but not spiritually. I'm going to say that one more time. In the Old Testament, the people of God were the nation of Israel. 
In Christ, it's no longer possible to be a member of God's covenant people ethnically or corporately in this room, but not spiritually. Okay? This is why your grandma's faith does not save you. My grandfather, so our, like, I have this, like, this awesome legacy that God has given me, um, where my, the faith, faith has been passed down to me. I've had very faithful, um, there have been very faithful men in our family and women in our family that have, that have trained me up, okay? I don't take that lightly. It is something I praise God for. It is very much my testimony, okay, to a lot of people. Specifically, though, my grandfather on my dad's side, so my dad's dad, um, his dad, so my great-grandfather was not a believer. My great-grandmother was, and they so happened to have nine children, my grandpa being one of the nine children. And so what she would do is she would um, serve my great-grandfather, and she would continue to be an example of Jesus Christ through her words and through her action. And every week, one of the things that she would do as an example of Jesus Christ is she would get all nine children, put them in the car, and they would go to church and leave my great-grandfather at home because he didn't want to go. And so she went, and she did this faithfully over a long period of time until finally one day my great-grandfather decided, I'm going to go see what this whole thing is about. And so he gets in the car, and they go, and the Holy Spirit did this amazing thing where he spoke to my great-grandfather. And in that, that day, my great-grandfather decided, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm turning my life around. And so the next week was May 11th, long time ago. And my great-grandfather and my grandfather were baptized on the same day. And it was interesting because where they lived, there was some freak snowstorm that day. I know, in May 11th, that's weird. Um, there was some weird freak snowstorm, and either that or my grandpa is getting this really mixed up as he's getting old. <laughs> so maybe I should just say that. <laughs> eh, sorry, Grandpa. He doesn't listen to podcasts. I don't know why I'm worried. Um, <laughs> but but um, so what, what, how he would tell it is they go, and they go to this little church, and the minister was actually about to decide to not have church that day because they didn't think anybody would be able to get there. And then 11 Weeses show up, and they say, please hold the doors. We have two people that want to give their life to Jesus, and so they, they don't. They have church. They have church. Um, and as amazing as that is, as amazing as that story is, I've been reflecting some on this idea that I, don't, I want to be careful because I don't want to belittle the fact that I have this incredible family who loves Jesus that God has used, I believe, like Paul, to shape me and to mold me. But I also want to make sure that I'm very clear that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is who saved Morgan Weiss. It was not my great-grandfather several years ago giving his life to Jesus that has saved me. It was not uh, my grandfather who faithfully, along with all of his eight brothers and sisters, then went into ministry. It was not uh, my dad who came out of that, who married someone who wanted to be a youth minister, and he became a youth minister instead, and then they had me and my brothers. It wasn't them. It is the Holy Spirit that has done that in my life. And I think maybe part of the reason um, I, I haven't reflected on that is because typically when I talk about my testimony, I refer to this family and this legacy, how God has used them. I don't think that's wrong. But this week, our staff went on this awesome staff retreat. And what we did is we went to Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, and we got to hear from three different professors on three different topics having to do with ministry. And my favorite professor, <laughs> Mark Scott, talked, I know, I reference him every time we listen to this week. I'm sorry. Uh, hopefully I reference Jesus more than I reference Mark Scott. But um, this is what he, what he said. Is he, he was talking about um, he, this commitment, I will work hard. And at some point, I think what we were asking about was maybe like what he was praying for um, and how he prayed every day for different groups of people. And he talked about how Saturday and Sunday are flexible. And then he said, Wednesdays are the day he's fast. And then he said, Sunday's the day I take the Lord's communion, the day I take the Lord's supper. And then he started like in that moment, just like went to a whole different place. And he looked down, like he didn't look at us for a second. And he started to cry. And he said, he said, and I just remember 
how God reached down and saved a little, and he named his age, I don't know, nine-year-old boy from Kiakagawa or something, you know, saved this little boy. And he just, he just kind of loses it for a second. And I sat there and I was thinking. And so I started thinking over this week um, my conversion story. And then after that, my conversion story to where I am now. Like, what, what has God done in my life? And I just, I realized, like, this is crazy. But on February 1st, 1998, in Stillwater, America, at the edge of Richmond and Perkins, I gave my life to Jesus, and my dad baptized me. But Jesus Christ saved me. Not my dad. Not my grandpa. Jesus Christ. And then since then, I really have become more and more and more like Jesus. And that blows my mind. Because the only way that's possible is that the Holy Spirit is actually a real thing. And he's living um, and breathing and doing his work around me, through a lot of you people, in me, um, through me. I mean, it's crazy to think about. And it does. It, it makes you just feel a little overwhelmed for a second. Just a little overwhelmed for a second. In Christ, it's not possible to be a member of his body without the Spirit. It's not. It's not. Moses, um, back to Moses when we're talking about Old Testament, okay? He's called to mediate the law to, like, the stubborn people. And then um, God calls Paul to basically mediate the Spirit to a transformed people. Okay? A transformed people. People have been transformed by the Spirit. Under the new covenant, there's no longer a distinction between those within the community who have transformed heart and those who don't, because all who belong to the new covenant do so by, by the way of a transformed heart in Christ. I love how this commentary put it. The foundation of the new covenant is forgiveness. The provision of that covenant is the spirit. The consequence of that covenant is obedience the promise of that covenant is to be in God's presence forever as his faithful people. Jeremiah thirty-two forty says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from, and I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You know what this means for us? Do you know what this means for us when it talks about the letter that kills but the spirit that gives life? When it talks about this idea that um, Christ has delivered you and he has delivered you and he has written on written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God and he's not written on tablets of stone but he's written on your human heart. Do you understand what it's talking about when it says um, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant? Mediators of the Spirit-giving life covenant. Not of letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The call of God takes place in Christ. The service takes place by the means of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who brings us to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's the Spirit who brings into being the new life of the new creation that we are in Jesus. You can swear allegiance to Christ and then only remain faithful to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our covenant relationship with God from beginning to end is based on God's previous act of redemption and his continuing acts of provision to provide for us, whether they're anchored in Exodus from slavery in Egypt or whether they're anchored in Christ and slavery from sin. In, the sec in this other exodus, essentially. So keeping God's commands is what trusting in God looks like as the source and supply of our everyday life. Keeping in the commands, because we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's my question to you. What evidence do you have that you belong to Christ as a member of the New Covenant community? What fruit of the Spirit are at work in your life? 
if your life is a recommendation letter attesting to the work of Christ's death on the cross in the place of your sins, and people are reading the letter of your life every day in your apartment and in your sorority and in your classroom and in your family, do they see the Spirit at work? Are you a letter of life to life or death to death for them? Both of those would be good things, by the way. So here's a better way maybe to ask that question. Maybe here's some a little more like ways to assess whether I believe that there's evidence in your life. Okay? Do you trust God to supply all you need? More pointedly, here's when some ways to say it. Um, do you trust that the satisfaction you look for will not be found in sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend, but only in Jesus? Do you trust that God will supply all you need? Do you trust that God will give you a new family when you give your life to him? So even if your blood family is full of unbelievers, you're not going to be left as an orphan in the faith. Do you trust God to supply all that you need? Do you trust that you do not need to lie to impress others or to affirm your identity, that your life in Christ is enough for others to see, and that your confidence in who he has designed you to be and who he is is enough of a foundation on which to find yourself. Do you trust in him and God to supply all you need? What is the evidence in your life that you are a member of this new covenant? Have you traded the work of the Spirit under the new covenant for your own best efforts to do the right thing? I do that sometimes. Like you've been a Christian for a long time, but you find yourself not really seeking God anymore. You're just like make you're not really making all these other sinful decisions either, but you're not really seeking the Lord. So it's kind of this happy medium. Have you traded the work for the Spirit under the new covenant for just your best efforts? Do you constantly break the link between faith and obedience? Like God's commands no longer apply to you if you only just believe in Jesus. So do you downplay your sin instead of weigh it through with Jesus? Or do you continue to sin in the same way over and over and over again and then say, I'm good, I'm saved by faith, only to just jump right back in it? If that's you, if you're just like sitting this Sunday at church and the communion plate is about to come around and you're sitting there, and you are completely aware of the sin that you are committing, and you have no intention of stopping, I would just warn you, you probably shouldn't take communion that week. The Bible doesn't really recommend that. That's not really evidence that you belong to a new covenant. Are you content with where you are spiritually, or do you pray for the Spirit to continue to change you more and more into the likeness of Christ? It's something I've talked a lot with Scott about because it's something that I have these four awesome girls that I brag about and that I probably shouldn't love more than everyone else, but I just do and I can't help it. And I'm just going to say, I don't even care. It's Abby and Allie and Kylie and Alyssa, and I'm careful because I love everyone, but these girls just have my heart in a, in a huge way, and I think it's because I've just known them for a really long time, like a long time. Um, I started babysitting Allie and Abby when they were like two, and so they are a little bit like... If I feel like I, if I, if I think back and think who have I actually discipled, I would say they are two people that I feel like I have um, so far. And then Kylie and Alyssa, it's like we started a meeting when they were in seventh grade. And so, but, but anyways, all that's beside the point. One of my biggest concerns for these girls that I would say to them, and that Scott and I have talked about, is, is that idea. Are you content with where you are spiritually? Because they're really good girls. And they, they really do love Jesus. Or do you pray for the Spirit to continue to change you to be more and more like Jesus Christ? There's a lot of times I'll say, like, what are you struggling with? What's something I can be praying for? Um, what's, what are some sins that, that, are face, that you're facing right now? And the girl, it will take them a minute to figure that out. Because there's legitimately not a whole lot that they would, like, in this world, that the world would be, you'd be able to figure out with sin. But I don't want them to just do the right things because they just want to do the right things. I want them to make the right choices because they want to be more like Jesus. And there's a difference in those things. Do you repent and believe every day? Do you listen and respond to what God is doing every day? 
If we live in a watching world, are you the aroma of Christ? Are you a recommendation letter that points to the new covenant found in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you just a pre-law student getting your degree at Oklahoma State? I mean, seriously, that's my question. That's my question. If we live in a watching world, are you the aroma of Christ? I think about this a lot. What makes me most emotional? I think about this a lot with my son. In my home, am I an aroma of Christ? Which means there are one of two things that he is hearing from me. I'm either a message of life to life or of death to death for him. But I just don't want him to leave my home thinking that he's okay to live however he wants and he's just going to just be with Jesus forever someday. That's not true. It's not true. I'm going to pray for us. And I know this is like a heavy topic. And we use the word covenant a lot. And we use some, like, some words that if you don't understand what they mean, the more you study them, the richer they get. Um, but please, please come and talk to us. Please, please come and talk to us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you sprinkle clean water on us, that you clean us from our inside out. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross in our place for our sin, for your glory, and for our benefit, that we can just be in your family, and we can have a relationship with you, that you brought this new covenant that you promised. Lord, I thank you that you... You are true to your promises. And Lord, I thank you that you put your Holy Spirit within us, around us, to work through us, to work on us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, do what you want with the words Drew said and with the words I said. We recognize that um, any movement that happens in our hearts is, is from you if it is of the Spirit and if it is true. Lord, give us your wisdom and fill us with your Spirit. Amen. Briefly, real quick, um, going through this text this week and, and hearing Paul say,